This is part two of our series with Benjamin Fields. (laughs) Welcome to Declassified College, a podcast where we give you all the cheat codes needed to pass this level in your life. Each week, we share three short episodes filled with clips of our interviews with students from across the United States and occasionally an interview with an industry expert to answer all of your questions about attending university. College can be what sets you up for a prosperous career, or it can be the four years that when you look back on it, you wish that you did it different. We're here to make sure that you have all the information so that by the time you walk across that stage, you're ready for the so-called real world that the boomers love to talk about. My name is Justin Wynn, and it's about time we declassified college. So part one with Benjamin Fields was all about his story. We got to learn about how he got to Cornell and his very beginnings of creating this list of cheat codes. In this episode, we get to dive deep into all the cheat codes that he has, and we get to learn more about how he's been able to leverage it during his time at Cornell. We talk about financial literacy, how to get free degrees, and everything in between all of that. So make sure that you stay tuned because this episode, if you're going to listen to any podcast out there, you need to listen to this one. So without waiting any longer, let's jump into part two with Benjamin Field. When you say know your professor, right, is that just coming from hanging out with um, like in office hours or like, is there like asking for like an informational interview to learn a little bit more about their background? Like, what does that entail to really get to know your professor? Hanging out in office hours and always start from day, start from day one, day one in the class before you even learn anything. Just skim the book. There's a thing that people do called gutting books. You basically just read the introduction, read the conclusion. It's like 30, 40 pages worth. And then read the table of contents. You have a good idea of what the book's about. Just go to the professor and say, hey, you know, I think this question is really cool about this book. And are we going to investigate it? Just talk to them about the source. And, you know, the first few times you'll show up to office hours over and over. The professor will get to know you. You'll start to look forward to it. They will. And trust me, no students go to office hours until it's time that they know they're going to do bad on the exam or, you know, exam time's rolling around. So you'll have beat everyone to the punch. Dude, I completely can agree with that. Like I went to UCF, which is kind of the opposite of a Cornell, right? It's a public school. We've got 70,000 students. Some of my classes had a thousand plus people, but you could almost always get office hour times with these professors, even though they've had, they have thousands of other students that they have to tend to. Like you said, no one really attends them. (laughs) <laughs> and it's, it's pretty insane, um, except for like they might attend, for instance, there's this one marketing professor at my school, which everyone loves. And to get on her calendar is essentially impossible. But that's just because she's kind of like a dime in a dozen, essentially. But all right, so let's go on to, to tip number two, cheat code number two. What, what would you say is that one? Cheat code number two, this is going to be very controversial. And I think that it can lead to, to bad outcomes if you don't do it right. But whenever you first start college, everything that they tell you about what classes you should take, completely ignore. Everything I can't agree with anymore, and I don't even know what the rest you're going to say, but I love the beginning (laughs) of it already. (laughs) And like, uh, you know, student advisors or people who the dogmatic scripts of how you should take your classes and how they'll unfold 
ignore it completely. Because number one, you probably won't even stick to the same major. And then number two, people, you know, the students who are very successful don't do that. The students who are successful say, hey, instead of taking all these classes right now so I can take the next set of classes that they want me to take, let me just break up. Okay, I'll take a couple hard classes this semester, a couple hard classes next semester, and then fill it in with some easier, interesting courses. That way, if I run into trouble with one class, I still have time because the other classes are easy. Or if I get one bad grade, my other grades are going to be good. So, you know, my whole semester is not going to be ruined. You do that and you realize, hey, these schedules that they gave us originally are nonsense. You'll realize that you have a lot more time than you think you do to take the classes that you need. And it'll just give you more freedom and flexibility. Oh, okay, I can switch majors. It's not that big of a deal. I've been taking classes that are interesting in both sets, you know, so I already have some progress towards that. Or I have classes that look for classes that overlap for multiple majors or classes that fulfill requirements that always take classes that are fulfilling something, but also never follow the dogmatic scripts they give you. Because usually, you know, if you haven't gone to a high school that prepares you for that or you aren't socialized into the school or, you you know, you're not, you're as an 18-year-old, you may not necessarily be where you be at when you're 19. The amount of you know intellectual development I've gone through in the past three years is astronomical. The same classes I get A's in now, I would have flunked back my freshman year. So strategically schedule your classes throughout the year, throughout your years to make sure that you're able to succeed very well. So when it comes to that, and you're looking back, obviously hindsight 2020, you're looking back on your, your freshman and sophomore year, how would you have played the game a little bit different in terms of the classes that you took? Um, so when it came to the hard pre-med classes, I definitely would have probably slashed the number in half. And then, like, is it possible, though, to do it with, with uh, like pre-med courses, kind of those, um, those weed-out courses? Yes, it is. The thing is, they kind of push you to say, okay, Bang, bang, bang. You got to get through these classes. You got to apply for med school early. You got to go to med school straight after. I think that that's a terrible idea. I think that you can spread the med school classes um, more thoroughly throughout your entire college experience. Take advantage of summer research programs. Take advantage of summer internships. That way you can have enough of a resume to get a one-year um, you know, short little job. It could be something like public health. It could be in something like a research assistant. Or you could even stay at the school and do research with a professor. They could fund you on their research grants, which I could go in on about how lucrative being a professor is. But anyways, you um, there are many things that you could do for a year that will all build you up to be a good med, med school applicant. You can spread it out, make it easier for yourself, and it'll be a win-win-win later on. See, that's super interesting. There's a couple of things that you brought up there, but I really want to bring up so I, I i went to go see a cardiologist one day and i was just talking to him i was like hey if you were to do it again like would you do the same thing he was like would i become a cardiologist like i love what i'm doing but if i wanted to go the easy route i would have became a doctor or a dentist it's a similar schooling similar pay but less work um and then he's like if i really wanted to streamline my process of going into med school i would have just been a business major through for my undergrad and then taking all the science classes that were required to get into med school. So then I could have a high GPA to apply for med school. And my course load during undergrad would have been complete a lot easier than getting a med degree. And I was like, wait, so you could apply to med school with a business degree? He's like, yeah, as long as you take the, the chems and the bios and the anatomies that you need to, you can still graduate with a business degree. And that really blew my mind. 
Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? That's insane. But okay. So that's great. Right. Uh, tip number two, but you brought up being how lucrative being a professor was. And this has sort of come to my mind too recently when I talked to a professor and she asked me if I knew any psychology students that were looking to get into like the VR AI world because she had a position open to be a research assistant that gets paid, gets a master degree comped for them and then gets paid on top of that. And I was like, wait, that's a thing. I thought you just paid to go to master's school and you got your master's or you got like the company that you work for to pay for your master's. But let's talk about re- being a professor, the funding, the research side of things. And then like, I'm not sure if you dove into like how to get your graduate degree either paid for or, like different ways to pay for that. But would love to to learn a little bit about that side of the world too. Okay. Um. So yeah, right now I'm applying to grad schools. Um applying to PhD programs in sociology. I'm basically applying to every single school in California. <laughs> Shout out to Cali. And then a lot of the um top sociology programs like Harvard, Princeton. I'm throwing an application actually at Harvard Graduate School of Education because I do have interest in the sociology of education. But from what I know about the academic world of things, there is, oh gosh, I could go on for, you know, I I, I want to give people a complete idea. So Going to graduate school, definitely, there's a lot of bias in getting there. Um, they emphasize things like the GRE, your undergrad institution. They say that it, they're not the most important things, but I think they are based on what I know about admissions. I've talked to professors here and kind of got an idea of how that goes about. And so there's some bias in getting there. But once you get there, the grad school life is, I hear mixed opinions. I hear that it's you know tough in one vein, but also you are paid in a sense. and you're on a college environment, it's it's very healthy, conducive to you staying safe. You'll be taken care of. I used to look at PhD programs like there's no way in the world I would get accepted. It's a lot harder than I think. How am I going to pay for it? You know, people who get scholarships, they must be spectacular. But, you know, one thing I learned is actually that all PhD programs are fully funded. What do you mean by that? So anytime you get into a PhD program, you're going to get a tuition waiver you're going to get student health insurance and a living stipend. And now is that do you is that only for private universities or have you done the research to say that that's for public like as all well. public as public. well. Yeah. Really? Yeah, pretty much all accredited um PhD programs in most disciplines. And you know, I want to take a little quick side note. You'll probably have to get me back on track after this, but this one thing I really want to talk about I didn't get a chance earlier, which is the narrative portion of college, the narrative that, hey, you know, for example, when you hear someone say, I'm going to a PhD program fully funded, when they add that fully funded component, even though that's compulsory for all PhD programs, there is a narrative, there is a caricature that you're going to add to that person saying, damn, like they're spectacular. There's something special there. That's not normal. The same thing happens with going into getting into elite schools or looking at a certain professor or looking at a certain student. And when you play into these narratives, one thing that really tripped me up my freshman year is was you get a bad grade in a class on one test. And then you hear these narratives and people say, you know, that class was so easy. I got this. People who didn't do this, they're stupid. You get into a then you're going to say, wow, I'm dumb. I might as well not even try or it psychologically affects you. You do bad on the next test. And then you're like, wow, they must be right. And then you get into this negative spiraling downhill effect of just doing worse and worse and worse in school because of a dumb narrative. When 
All you have to do is just study for the next test harder, study for the next test smarter, and you would do better, and you would be out of that silly little narrative. These narratives are very powerful, very powerful, and they control a lot of things. And, you know, I just, sorry, I just, this reminded me that, but the PhD programs are always fully funded. So if someone says, hey, you know, I got full scholarship to go to the PhD program, they're trying to hype themselves up. But, you know, if you know better, you'll know that, hey, all PhD programs are fully funded. That's interesting. Yeah. That, like, learning about all these sort of ins and outs of like college, especially, have, has been absolutely insane, especially with like the college scandals that happened earlier this year and everything kind of like that. It was all these things that we sort of had in the back of our head that we knew, but we hadn't, we didn't really have like confirmation of it. So it's really interesting to see sort of these things. And I appreciate you bringing it to light about being able to have school paid for you essentially for a phd program yeah never do a master's oh sorry no no go ahead uh what do you mean by never do a master's masters are not funded but phd programs are funded every so can you do a phd program without getting a master's yes you can you can go straight from undergrad to phd which is what a lot of people do which is what i'm doing a lot of phd programs actually give you a master's on the way to getting a phd program the way they work is you'll have about two years of coursework. You'll do like oral exams. You might have a thesis depending on the program. And after that, you'll get a conciliatory master's. And then after that, you'll be working on your dissertation, you know, teaching classes, teaching assistantships, research assistantships. And that's until you finish the doctoral program completely. Mo- yeah. So most PhD programs will come with the master's anyways. It will make you more competitive to go in with one in some instances, but it's not necessary whatsoever. In fact, if you really want a master's, just do a PhD program, get the free master's and drop out of the program. I think that's unethical, but, you know, it's something that you could do if you if you really want a free master's. That's interesting. I didn't know that you could just jump from undergrad to PhD. Yeah, um, these narratives, they've been controlling us. I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, even just the narrative, like, you need to go to college to be successful. Like, yeah. that narrative alone is is really untrue, especially in the day of the internet. It's crazy. So let's get back on topic. Um, I could talk about all this stuff of, like, the college system, everything like that. But let's go into tip number three. What's that sort of cheat code right there? Tip number three. Um, I kind of touched on this before with uh, not listening to what people say. Tip number three, you know, I'm from I'm from a low-income Black background, and there's a term that me, my brother, and a lot of our friends use, and it's just be a dog. When it comes to your success, and when it comes to you competing and you being the best, you have to be ruthless. You have to be bloodthirsty. You know, it sounds crazy, but you always have to believe in yourself, no matter what. And you always have to believe that you can achieve and you can be the best. And even if you can't do it today, you can work towards it and get to it later in the future. If you think Albert Einstein was born solving general relativity out the womb, you're crazy. It took a lot of study and it took a lot of work for him to get to where he was. And we've created these narratives that, hey, the people at the top, you know, they don't have to work there. They're so talented. Da, 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 da. People don't realize how much talent they have. And, you know, the more you believe in yourself, the better you'll do. I'll give an example in social science research. There are studies that show that if you hint at race on a test, African-American and Hispanic slash Latino students will actually do worse on the test because they know that psychologically they're supposed to do worse. And the, the, the classification actually hinders their performance, all things else equal, regardless of how much they know, whereas white students will get a boost. 
like that first question test that they have usually of like, oh, what's your ethnicity or whatever it is? Yeah, because they know that it's associated with test scores and they know that stereotypically they're not supposed to get higher test scores. It psychologically affects them and actually drops their test scores. Whereas for white students, it makes their test scores go up. That makes sense. I can see, just, I can see how that just works. Just something as simple as a classification. I'm doing a senior thesis on the looking glass self. And it's kind of how others perceive you affects how you perceive yourself. And the psychological um, things that go on, they limit you. Or there are studies where they have like a biker and the biker will be, they'll put like a ghost in front of him that goes, you know, 2% faster than his best. And they'll just blow right past that biker because they don't have that psychological limit of saying, there's a time I have to reach, there's a destination I have to reach. It's more just competitiveness, believe in yourself. Because the psychological is so important. Yeah, no, I agree with that 100%. And people have to realize that, you know, like when you watch those movies, when you watch movies of like a superhero, like realizing, hey, this is who I am. I have to go back and save the day. You can have that same narrative. You shouldn't be, you should never be listening to other people telling you what you should do or what you should be able to. Because say, for example, you know, somebody tells you, hey, you should be able to get this on the test and this is how you should study. Are they going to be there just in case you get an F, you know, to take responsibility for their for their advice? Or, you know, if somebody tells you, hey, do this, do that, or this is what you should think about yourself. Are they going to be there to reap the consequences of their advice? No. So you're better off believing in yourself and pushing yourself as hard as you can and succeeding. And, you know, if you mess up, you can say, hey, this one's on me. But now because it's on me, I can learn from that and I know how to go forward in the future. Dude, I love that. That's it makes a lot of sense because like my background's in sports too. So I can kind of envision this one time specifically, like we'd always have to do conditioning and I sucked at conditioning. I sucked at running. And my friends, two of my boys there were really good at running. Like they had energy for days and usually they would just blow by me. But this one day they were either taking it a little easier or like maybe I was just going harder or something, but they were like, like you said, kind of like that two to 5% above me. Mm -hmm. And then, I finished way fast. Like usually I would finish the six miles in like close to an hour or so. And then that day I finished within like 45 minutes or 48 minutes or something crazy like that. And I was like, holy shit. I knew I didn't even know I could run this much, but because like I wasn't really thinking about the time and like what I knew that I was, what I was supposed to get because I wasn't good at running. I just kept up with them at their pace. Exactly. That, that makes a ton of sense. Like that's crazy. Okay. So we've gotten three tips, which are great. And I want to dive into when I spoke with uh, Joshua, he was telling me how you've been able to travel the world, essentially on like the university dime a little bit. Uh, Talk about sort of the ways students can leverage their universities in terms of whether it's travel, studying abroad, anything like that, so that they can explore a little bit more and get more use out of all the money that they're paying in college. Yes, this is my favorite topic by far. Free stuff finessing and we're not talking about t-shirts or like free pizza we're talking like trips i have been on free trips i have been to toronto i have been to dubai i've been to africa i'm about to go to asia i'm gonna go to multiple different countries you know singapore bangkok bali this is my favorite topic so basically your unit you people don't realize universities are big money big big money um things. I have an idea of how much money elite universities have. Public schools definitely have a lot of money as well. And they have sports programs that have a lot of money. But you know, at schools like Cornell or even the University of Michigan, Stanford, Southern California, these schools have multi-billion dollar endowments. And they're getting a lot of money for a lot of different things. And 
in order to maintain the reputation to keep getting this money, they have to have different programs. They have to expand and do all kinds of cool stuff around the world. And that's where they have a benefit to you. Because in order for them to do that stuff, they have to have students doing that stuff as well. They need programs. They need students in these programs to look good, to get funding. And so once you realize that and say, hey, I need to find all the different study abroad options there are at school. And there's hundreds of them. And there's hundreds of funding sources, not just at the university, but you can get funding from things like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You can get funding from, it's hard to think of the names, but I think it's like Gilman, the Gilman Scholarship. There's hundreds of them online through the government, through other organizations, through your university. Find these programs and apply for this funding. You can get full funding to go on trips to travel the world and do research and do cool things, internships, etc. Now, the finessing part comes in here. So say you do a study abroad program at your school. They're going to expect for you to pay things up front. Even if you do get funding, you're going to have to get reimbursed. And that's a very, very hard thing for a lot of low-income families to do. It was something that was very hard for me to deal with. One thing that I've learned you can do to mitigate some of these problems is, for example, have a credit card or have good credit. And that's going to be a very key institution into you finessing for free. So the first time I studied abroad, I, you know, I had to just beg people for money and say, hey, I need this money. I'm going to pay you back. I'm gonna, I got funding for it, but I just have to wait for it to hit my bursar or whatever. And so you know, I would do that and then pay them back and whatever. I'd go on the study abroad trip, come back. And then I realized, hey, I have to book my own flight for these things. Why don't I just leave two weeks early and travel around the region where it's a lot cheaper? You know, for example, if you're, you know, studying abroad in Qatar or Qatar is, I think, how they pronounce it. If you leave and go there two weeks early, you can just take buses from Qatar to Dubai or Qatar to Oman or Qatar to Saudi Arabia or to any you know place you want to go that's nearby, it's a lot cheaper instead of you individually have to wait until you have a time to buy a plane ticket to go back. And so that's one way that you can travel to places for relatively cheap. If you do that, you know, you can get the buses for 20, 30, 40 bucks. You can get Airbnbs, hostels, 20, 30, 40 bucks, and then just pay for food, which is not nearly as expensive as here in the US. And you just finesse the free trip to a few extra countries for two or three hundred bucks. You know, that's just working 10 hours, 20 hours on campus. Or no, no, sorry, that's wrong. That's just working, you know, 30, 40, 50 hours on campus throughout the semester. Or, you know, saving up birthday money or saving up Christmas money. And then I learned about credit cards. And a lot of people don't have financial literacy. We don't have enough time for me to go too in-depth in it. But essentially, if you pay off your balance every month, a credit card is not bad. You'll pay no interest. But there are a lot of credit cards that if you get them, you get a sign-up bonus for spending a lot of money in a very short amount of time, usually three months. And so if I'm going to study abroad, what I'll do is I'll get a credit card, a brand new one that has a um, sign-up bonus. I'll just charge the whole study abroad on the card. I'll get, And you don't have to pay it for, you know, about a month, month and a half until you have to start paying interest. So that gives, I can pay it on the card. I don't have to deal with begging people for money to pay them back. I get the funding, pay the card off, but you also get a sign-up bonus, you know, 50, 100,000 bonus points, and that's enough to take a free round-trip flight. I did that for my study abroad program I'm about to do in the next few weeks in Southeast Asia. I got enough bonus points to go to, on a graduation trip to Europe, 
the flights paid for through the credit card bonus. And then I was able to leave a couple of weeks, leave a couple of weeks early for the study abroad trip. And I'm just going to travel Southeast Asia for really, really cheap. You know, I work on campus and I save up, you know, like a hundred bucks a month and, you know, it adds up over time. And so I was able to add not just one new place, you know, but, you know, six or seven new places. And then I got bonus miles to go to Europe. You know, if you know how to do it, you know, it could be a very lucrative experience for yourself. Okay. So that seems amazing. And I 100% agree. Like points are beautiful if you know how to use them. Credit cards are great if you treat them as debit cards, essentially. Um, And I have a financial background. So like that all makes sense for me. And obviously, we don't have time to dive into financial literacy. We've got like 10 more minutes. So I don't want to dive down that rabbit hole. But many people might be listening to this, right? And they're saying, oh, but Benjamin Fields, like, yes, he might be coming from a low income background, but he's going to Cornell. Like, I can't even associate with that sort of level of academia, so to say, an eliteness in terms of university. Like, I'm going to the UCF or, or USF in, in Florida, which are just state schools down here, or even like UConn up in Connecticut, right? Mm-hmm. What do you say to those people? Like, because I know every all of these schools have resources. It's all about figuring out how, like, how do these kids find it at their universities? Um, you know, it'll be a little bit hard for me to speak on that because I'm not sure how that works. But yes, there are resources. And one route that I would go is become friends with people at financial aid. Become friends with people who lead these programs. Become friends with people who you know are wealthy on campus or, you know, have connections to money on campus because at the end of the day, networks are what get people jobs. That's another topic that I could go on hours for. I mean, we could create an entire podcast on the different elements of college, (laughs) but knowing your financial aid, knowing people at financial aid, if you go to them, for example, and say, hey, I want to do a program they'll know where to get money from, or they'll even know how they can give you money, or they even will give you money. If you're connected with the people who lead the programs, they have experience from students in the past who needed to get funding. They'll know where to get funding from. A lot of professors who who lead these programs, they actually do have sources of funding. And if they know you well, or you're one of those top students, they'll give you funding themselves. It's all about building relationships at that point to try to figure out, okay, where are these resources at? And you just have to walk and just go to each person's office and say, hey, we need to build a relationship. We need to be friends. And I need you to help me find these funding resources. And you need to do it with no hesitation. You know, you're paying to go there. So you're entitled to 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 talking to these people and finding out these funding sources. So really, it really just comes down to asking, you would say. Yes. Guided asking and persistent asking. Don't take no for an answer as well. I love that. Okay, so we've gotten a lot of information, right? We've gotten three tips so far. We've d- dived into sort of graduate studies, a little bit into the admissions process, but we haven't talked about internships and jobs. And you just mentioned a little bit about how networks get you those internships and jobs. I know we don't have a ton of time and I can dive into that huge rabbit hole too, but like what do you mean by that? So, at Cornell, what they've done is, uh, you know, high profile jobs, something we would think of like JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, or like Oracle, Intel, whatever, Google, Facebook. They have two elements to this. Number one, the artificial um, inflation of credentials. And then number two, the background networks and things like that. 50% of jobs that people are hired for don't even hit the market or don't even hit announcement. They're filled through internal connections, number one. Number two, they 
they say, oh, we recruit these people from these elite schools, and they have these test scores, and they have this stuff on their resume. But all that stuff is is padding. All that stuff is phony. Um, most of it's not real. And the reason they're really getting the job is not because of the credentials, but it's because of the fact that they know people. For example, if I know someone here at Cornell whose dad works high up in Goldman Sachs, you really think that I'm not going to get a job? Or, you know, it's it's stuff like that. And it's a lot more pervasive than people understand. And yeah, you know, the I mean, dude, like I I interned at this uh, financial company in, in Connecticut, like it's a fortune 150 company. And like the first day during like the orientation and everything like that, they sat everyone down and they're like, congrats, guys, you guys are the top like 5% of all the applicants that applied. And I was like, looking around, like, I felt really good about myself. And then like, I started talking to all these people and like, this kid, his dad's like the CTO's son, or like his his aunt is like the chief of HR. And like, I'm like, what the heck? Like, there's like a handful of kids that aren't somehow related to this internship. And yeah. I'm like, this is insane. And it really puts it into perspective. Yeah. Um, oh, there's really something I want to get, I want to touch on. So this is something I'll just jump off, touch on, and then get back on topic. People have to realize that places like elite schools are top jobs. They make it seem like it's a privilege that they recruit. Asian American students or African American students or Latinx students or international students. Listen, they need us. The narrative that they are dogmatic or elitist and they only hire a very certain group of people, that hurts them. And so they have to hire people like us. They need us. And so there are spots for us and we have to know how to go get them. So like using that to your advantage. Yes, use it to your advantage. But you know, to get back on top, most of these people have connections into this world and being at Cornell, I've realized a lot of the stuff that are on people's resumes are exaggerated, hyperbolized. What do you mean by that? So, for example, like on my resume, I, I definitely, I genuinely did do everything on my resume and they all are important to me, to my schedule, but people don't realize how easy it is to pack your resume full. Because I did a double major, quadruple minor. I'm doing not one senior thesis, but I'm about to do a second one. I've led like discussion groups for international students. I've done like Black Students United, all this stuff. And you got to realize a lot of this stuff, you could do something for an hour a day or you could do something once a month, like for five hours a month. And the way that you write it on your resume, if instead of putting specific dates or specific hours, you do things, you just put the month and year through month and year, you can make it look like you're a lot more busy than you are. Or you can sign up, you know, for a class and learn a statistical software that, for example, you really don't know how to do, but you took the class and passed it, you can put that on your resume. Or you can take a few language classes, slap that on your resume. Or you could do a five-hour-a-week internship during the summer and slap that on your resume. Um, there's a lot of ways that you can use to manipulate how good you look on paper. And every, every single student at elite schools does that. I don't care what anyone tells you. Don't let people lie to you. They all exaggerate. And then you look at these people on paper and say, wow, like these people are so spectacular. No wonder they're getting hired to these places. And it's just, it's a factory, you know, and the students here, when I talked about social and cultural capital earlier, they know how to play this game. They know what to put on paper. They know what to do. They know what connections they need to have. And they just, people who go to schools, elite schools, that, or people who go to these big time jobs, they are already predestined for it. They just say, hey, you know, we just got to go to school and chug through and we're done. Whereas the rest of us, we're trying to visualize a path to get there and trying to overcome obstacles that aren't really obstacles. It's just a big phony facade of how to get there. 
And that's just something I really, really want people to understand. So for that kid like ourselves who started out with zero network, right? How do we navigate ourselves in this world that is essentially built on who you know? Like, yes, obviously you need to have the skills to pay the bills at the end of the day, but many students have those skills, but they don't have the network to get them into the right spot to showcase them. How do you even start to build that? From day one in college, instead of I, you know, instead of going to parties and hanging out and trying to be friends with people, which are, which are part of the college experience, you need to be joining every organization you can on campus. You need to be taking all the pre-departure classes for study abroad programs on campus. You need to be going to all these talks where famous people are coming on campus. And you need to fight tooth and nail after they end to go talk to that person after campus and print off business cards. People will be impressed by that. I printed off business cards and gave them to people like, damn, this kid is legit. And if you do that and you position yourself as, wow, like this is one of those every once in a while students, you'll start to get people looking your way and people say, dang, your reputation will start to precede you. And then eventually professors will be looking out for you. People on campus looking out for you. Students will be pointing you, hey, did you know this person's coming on campus? Or, hey, let me connect you to this person. And just Start making friends with people who you know's friends have connections. The thing is, this podcast is too short. I could go hours. I could tell you stories about being friends with children of billionaires and having dinner with billionaires on campus, presidents of university. I could do it all. But you need to be seeking out these relationships and these resume builders. You need to be seeking out these opportunities and connections from day one at school saying that, oh, I'm going to wait till my junior year or sophomore year, for, uh, that's stupid. Don't do that. Right from the get-go, guns blazing, you need to be getting ready for this stuff. I love it, man. All right, so we've got a minute and a half. Let's do a quick fire round of five more tips that you have for college students. Go. Oh, this is hard. Stud- I know it's tough, man. <laughs> study abroad, expand your horizons, learn a new language looks great on paper, no matter what job you do. Don't waste your time with too many relationships, please. You're not- When you say relationships, what do you mean? You're not gonna marry a person you met at a party and got drunk and made out with. It's impossible. And if you do, (laughs) if you do marry them, you're gonna be like the vast majority of the country who gets divorced very quickly. Save money by living off campus and um, cooking your own food. You know, your financial aid money, will be reimbursed, will be sent to you, and you'll use that to pay your rent and for food. And so if you find a cheaper place than on campus and a cheaper place than eating in the dining hall, you can save a lot of money. Keep your room clean and organized. Keep a planner. Um, Make sure your calendar is filled out and you know what the hell is going on and when stuff is due because that stuff will catch up. And make big goals for the future and start planning them now. You could say, I want to be president of the United States when you're five years old. People are like, yeah, you're full of crap, but if you start, if you go to Yale, you go to Yale Law School, your odds go up. You know, if you know Senator whatever his face is, or you get a job in government, your odds go up. You have to realize that getting to your big goals is not just a one in a million, but it can go from one in a million to one in a hundred thousand, to one in a thousand, to one in twenty, to one in five, and then eventually one in one. There you are. Those are my five tips. Another day, another cheat code. And you're on your way to defeating the level that we like to call college. If you've liked any of the Chico's that we've given out, 
please hit that subscribe button and give us a review on iTunes. Each review helps us grow and make sure that more people learn these tips. We love to hear from you all, so make sure you check out our website, www.getchillgrindup.com, and follow us on all social media platforms at getchillgrindup. That's G-E-T-C-H-O-G-R-I-N-D-U-P. So until next time, peace.